0: Father, as evidence of your gracious mercy, please, as you have gathered us, help us to hear, to hear your voice in this letter, that by your Spirit, please, implant your truth into our hearts, that we may not only know, uh, but be convinced and be able to walk in light of its truth. Thank you, Father. Amen. Now, if you look at your bulletin, you'll see an outline, and I have put, you know, I've given some shape to the outline, and you can see that the last two points reflect each other, as well as the second and the second last one reflect each other. I think this is the structure that Jude has in his letter. So the middle part is all about the judgment on false teachers, and in fact, uh, the... Middle portion, the beginning verses and ending verses are all specific about judgment on the false teachers. So there's this um, sandwich structure that Jude has put into his letter. So who is Jude? Well, he says he is the brother of James. Now James, in uh, Galatians 1.19, Paul refers to as the Lord's brother. So, which means if Jude is the brother of James, he is also the brother of Jesus Christ. But notice, he doesn't, you know, show rank uh, in his letter. He simply calls himself a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ. So, the first point verses 1 to 2 God who keeps. God who keeps. Now, I really like Jude. Uh, Because he, like me, likes the number three. So, all throughout his letter, you'll see he uh, likes to say things in threes. Okay, so this, in verse 1, is the first example. He addresses his readers as those who are called, loved, kept. So, called, what does it mean to be called? Now, Christians, eh, they are frequently described as people who are called. It is the most frequent one-word description of a Christian, that we are called. Now, what do you understand by being called? Now, it is not referring to the general call that goes out to everyone. The call here is the specific and personal call by God. And it is more than just an invitation uh, to come to God. Often, the, you know, becoming a Christian, converting, is pictured as God you know, maybe coming with a bunch of flowers to the door of your house and he ding dong, ting dong, ting dong, knock, 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 knock. And then you, in hearing the doorbell, you go and you open the door and say, God, ah, welcome, come in, come into my life. That is wrong. Okay, that's not the picture at all. Okay, rather, the picture that the Bible gives us is that we are dead. We are dead in our sin. We are dead because we have sinned and transgressed against God. We are, we are trapped in the dominion of darkness. And God comes and He breaks down the gate. He, he throws off the dungeon walls. He breaks off our chains. He makes us alive and brings us into His kingdom. That is God calling us. So, to be called by God is not just an invitation to come to God. It is God's determination to save us. But the question is why? Why should God be determined to save? What's the reason? And Jude's answer is it is because God the Father loves you. We are called, and we are called because we are loved by God the Father. Now, it's clear, right? God calls us because He loves us. Now remember, what was there in us? What was there, you know, inherently in us that was so good that God should love us? Uh, so one of my, you know, favorite Running Man members, Kim Jong Kook, his his signature song, right, is "Lovable," right? Oh, you know, you are so lovable from head to toe. That's not us at all. There was nothing lovable or adorable about us. We were dead in our sins. We were objects of wrath. Now that's clear, right? We, we had nothing to commend ourselves to God. But God loved us, came to us, saved us. So then, if that's clear, I mean, that's not unfamiliar teaching, right? So if that's clear, then, then why is it that so many Christians struggle with the certainty of God's love for them. There are so many Christians, if we are honest, we are actually unsure. We we lack assurance about God's love for us. Why? If God loved you, if God called you when there was nothing inherently lovable about you, then why is it that now when we are Christian, when we have become God's children, we start having doubts. you, you understand my question? If we, if we say, yes, we were dead in our sin, God loves us, God calls us. Then now we are Christian. We are God's children. Then Why do we start having doubts that He loves us? You know why? Because we are looking at ourselves. Because we are looking at how good we are obeying. We are looking at our performance, and when our performance, when our obedience sucks, we have doubts. (sighs) He's just putting up with me. He doesn't really love me because I've done this and that, and I've not done uh, this and that. We have made the mistake of looking at ourselves for the reason. Looking at ourselves, looking for reason for God to love us. Do not do that. Do not start looking in. Do not do that. You will find nothing there. You will find no reason within yourself for God to love you. Instead, what we must do is we must look at what happened on the first Good Friday. Do not look within yourself for the reason for God's love. We must look instead to the cross for the proof of God's love. Don't look within yourself for reasons for why God should love you. Instead, look to the cross because the cross shows us the demonstration, the proof that God indeed loves us. Romans 5 says, But God proves, He proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you see, right, what Paul is saying, this this proof, this demonstration of God's love has already happened. It is an event in history, it has already happened. And and, and Paul and God is saying that event is proof. My proof to you, my demonstration to you that I love you. And so I ask you, what more proof do you need? Look to the cross. See how much He loves you. So God the Father who has called you, He has called you because He loves you, and this God promises to keep you in Jesus. He promises to preserve you, to make sure that you will make it to the end. So called, loved, kept. See, it's all about what God does. It's all about divine action on our behalf. And so Jude, at the very start of this letter, gives his readers such an amazing assurance of God's actions and purpose for them. And the reason he's doing this is because he's writing to a church that's troubled, that's being unsettled, where potentially members of the church are being led astray. So he starts by getting them to look to God, to remember that they have been called, that they are loved, and it is God who will keep them. Now, of course, having such a perspective is helpful, not just for when the church is under threat from false teaching. But if I may say so, in my observation of Jane and Andrew, and in the trial that they are presently going through with the discovery of Jane having cancer, in my observation of them and in what people have told me in, you know, about them, I venture to say that it is precisely this perspective. That both Jane and Andrew, they have the bedrock assurance. Yes, there is sadness. Yes, there is grieving. Yes, there is questions and doubts. But there is the bedrock assurance that they have been called. That they are loved. And it is God, through Jesus, who will keep them. It is a perspective that has made all the difference. So the next point in verses 3 to 4 is Jude's call to content. The call to content. And he states his purpose for writing this letter very clearly. Right, verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. It is a call to contend for the faith. Now, the faith here is not the, you know, experience of trusting in God, you know, believing God. Uh, rather, faith refers to the body of teaching that was handed down from the apostles to them. In a word, this faith here refers to the gospel. Now again and again in the New Testament, uh, faith uh, is often referred to as uh, the gospel message itself. So notice it is not a call to proclaim the gospel, you know to, to do evangelism, uh, but rather it is a call to contend for the gospel, to defend the gospel, to protect the gospel. Now this This faith, this gospel was something that was entrusted, that has been uh, given over to the care of the church. Now, the fact that it has been entrusted to us means that we are accountable to God for what happens to it. We are now put in charge. It is under our care. God will ask us uh, what has happened to it. So Jude issues the call to contend for the gospel Because it is under attack. We have to contend for the faith, contend for the gospel, because it is under attack. Look at verse 4. He says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. So notice, it is not uh, under attack from the outside, but from within, from inside. These people, these false teachers, have secretly slid in. They have come presenting themselves as genuine and reliable Bible teachers. They, they come, they use the same lingo. Huh? They, they use the same version. Ah, they maybe wear the same blue shirt as Andrew. You know, see, because no false teacher comes to you, you know, with a tattoo down here, false teacher, and then say, I want you to believe this lie, right? Nobody does that. So, the reason why it's such a grave danger is because it's so subtle. They've secretly slipped in. And Jude describes these false teachers as ungodly. And what they have done is that they have perverted the grace of our God. They have distorted the gospel into making it a license to sin. They have turned grace into license. They say, I mean, God will forgive, right? So just go ahead, indulge the flesh. And by such ungodly behavior, they disobey Christ and end up denying the gospel and denying Christ as Lord. So Jude calls on God's people to contend, to fight, to defend the gospel. Because if the gospel continues to get distorted, if these false teachers have their way, continue leading astray people, then where where can people find the assurance that they are called, loved, and will be kept by God. So this is uh, Jude's call to contend, and in verses 5 to 19, the middle section, uh, the long and winding road, uh, he pronounces judgment on the false teachers. Now, we are going to go through this middle section, uh, I'm sure you are relieved to know, briefly. Okay? We, will, we will just look at the main gist of what Jude is trying to get across. Now, if you want to, see there are a lot of rabbit holes in this section. If you want to go through, go down every rabbit hole, we will be here till dinner time. Okay, because as you see, Jude not only references the Old Testament, but also obscure Jewish writings. Okay, so we will just go through this briefly. So, uh, have your finger at verse 5. Ready? Okay, we will go. He says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. All those who were delivered out of Egypt, they all witnessed God's salvation, but they did not all make it into the promised land. So he's saying these false teachers, they may have at one time, Maybe they were in the same baptism class as you. Maybe you were classmates together in the same uh, Bible college. But not all who began well will make it to the end because these people did not believe. And then verse 6, he says, The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on the great day. His point is, even angels will be judged. So, of course, these false teachers will not escape judgment. And verse 7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Why is it an example? Because in Jude's day, if the people were to go camping near Sodom and Gomorrah, you can still see smoke coming out from the, from the land. Evidence of the fire and sulfur that God rained down from heaven as judgment on them. So, when you go to Sodom and Gomorrah, you can still see, I mean, today cannot, but in Jude's time, you can see smoke coming out as a reminder of God's judgment on them. So, uh, Jude's point, these false teachers will be judged. Now he carries on in verse 8, <clears throat> uh, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams. So these people, they you know, put the Bible to one side and they just go, oh God has given me a vision, God has given me this dream. You can do this, I can do this, let's do this together, right? And what do they do? These ungodly people pollute their own bodies. Second part, reject authority. I think the order here is significant. What do they do first? First, they, on their own dreams, then they pollute their own bodies, then they reject authority. So, which means they start living in an ungodly way, they start indulging in their flesh, and because they have taken on this lifestyle of polluting their own bodies, it causes them to shift and to change on their teaching. So, they start rejecting the authority of the apostles, of what Jesus has taught. So, their ungodly lifestyle has led to them changing, massaging, uh, rejecting certain aspects of uh, God's word. And what do they do? They heap abuse on celestial beings, uh, which are probably referring to angels. Verse 9 But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So these false teachers, they, they reject uh, angels, uh, the, the law that the angels have given them. Uh, but Jude is saying, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil, even Michael did not condemn the devil himself. Instead, he left judgment to God. The Lord will rebuke you. And yet these false teachers, they have the audacity to blaspheme angels themselves. When even Michael did not condemn the devil, which is a fallen angel uh, himself, but left judgment to God. So verse 10 says, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. They do not understand angels, they do not understand the law that the angels have given. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So they thought of themselves as better than angels, but in fact they are on the same level as animals. And so verse 11, woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, of choosing wickedness rather than repentance. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, which is the error of greed. And they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. they have been rebellious like Korah against authority, and they will face judgment. So verse 12, these people are blemishes at your love feast. You know, when they come together to church with Lord's Supper, they are blemishes. They eat with you without the slightest qualm. They are shepherds who feed only themselves. They don't care about people. They just are greedy for their own interest, their own profit. They are clouds without rain. They, they promise a the lot, but then cannot deliver. They are autumn trees without fruit and uprooted they are fruitless, they cannot bear good fruit. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, You know, like wild waves throwing up all the filth onto the beach. And they are wandering stars for whom black, blackest darkness has been reserved forever. You know what a wandering star is? Stars in that day is what navigators used to guide them. And they used stars because they could know the, you know, the movement of the stars, But these false teachers are like wandering stars. They are unreliable guides. So Jude continues verse 14. Enoch, uh, not the Enoch in our church obviously, but Enoch the seventh from heaven prophesied about them. Uh, Prophesied about the false teachers. He says, see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. Okay, so Basically, this reference is wrapping up the section, again making clear certain judgment. These false teachers have been prophesied about, and their condemnation, their judgment is certain. Now, in verse 17, Jude shifts from talking, uh, referring from the Old Testament and Jewish writings to talking about present-day apostles. So, he says, verse 17, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. So it's not surprising. It's not something strange that has happened. They have already said, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. And so these, these are them. These false teachers, these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts. These are just worldly people and they do not have the Spirit. Okay, that's verse 5 to 19. Okay, right. <clears throat> so, you, you get a gist, but the question is, why? I'm, no, I'm not calling myself. <clears throat> I'm asking, why did Jude spend so many verses talking, you know, describing these false teachers? I mean, he could have stopped at verse 10, verse 11. I mean, we would have gotten the idea, right? But he goes on. Quotes all these obscure Jewish writings, you know, uh, one Enoch, this and that, this and that, the Moses story, you know, don't even know come from where. When. He could have just stopped earlier, but he kept going on. Why? Okay, I have three suggestions as to why. Uh, the first one, I think quite clearly, quite clearly, is he wanted the church to be able to identify these false teachers. Because remember, they have secretly slipped in. They all wear the same blue shirts like Andrew, right? You can't tell which is the the genuine one and which are the false teachers. So he spends time describing them, ungodly behavior, but the thing he emphasizes at the front and at at the end is a certain judgment on the false teachers. Now, why did he do that? Well, on Friday... My secondary school friends and I gathered for our, you know, 25 years of friendship and counting, you know, dinner, and I met up with friends you know I haven't had for haven't met for a few years, and uh, there were one or two of them who had become Christian, and inevitably, the issue of you know city harvest and what's happening there gets brought up, you know, and obviously they know I'm a pastor, and so they ask my opinion, <clears throat> but. Uh, these two Christian friends uh, said something like, but who are we to judge? But who are we to judge? Well, Jude makes it clear. God is going to judge. If these leaders, these false teachers have departed from the Gospel, if they are teaching false teaching, if they are living in this ungodly way, God is going to judge. So, are you going to say, who are we to judge? Are you going to say, but many people are, are being helped by his ministry. Are you going to say, but his church seems to be growing. They seem to be doing a lot of good work in the community. If the person has distorted, has perverted the grace of God, distorted the gospel. Judgment is certain. Jude calls us to contend for the gospel. We cannot just stand back, shrug our shoulders and say, who are we to judge? So I think that's the reason why he makes clear that judgment is certain. Now the third reason I think why Jude spends so much time (coughs) on the false teachers describing them, And he talks not only of their certain judgment, but he describes, right, all the ways in which they are ungodly. The error of the false teachers was primarily seen in how they lived their lives. Their denial of the gospel, their distortion of the gospel was seen primarily in how they perverted grace into license and lived ungodly lives. Now, I believe Jude goes into such detail about the ungodliness of the false teachers, is to indirectly warn the church. Are you also having a tendency to live this way? Is there any tendency in your life? Has a tendency to pervert the gospel of grace into license? Has that in has a tendency to indulge the flesh. in. Is there any evidence of being you know grumblers, fault finders, of, of, of having greed, rejecting authority? Don't head in that direction, Jude is warning the church. These false teachers are, are running along in that direction and what awaits them there is only certain judgment so watch your life see if there's any tendency to distort the gospel yourself cry out to God repent so to contend for the gospel he calls them not only by protecting the truth, you know, not just by going on websites and saying, oh, this false teacher, you know, this is the way he distorted the gospel, but also in your life, living in a way that is worthy of the gospel, living in accordance with the truth of the gospel. And so you see how, therefore, in the next section, verses 20 to 23, Jude teaches us how to contend. How to contend. And this flows directly from talking about the ungodliness of the false teachers. Jude, in verses 20 to 21, exhorts the church to growing godliness. To contend for the gospel by paying attention to that relationship with God. Verse 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Now notice there are four instructions here. But of the four instructions, there is one main one. Now, the NIV tries to make clear which one is the main one. But in the Greek, it is very clear because it uses a different uh, uh, grammatical form. So, it's very clear in Jude's mind which is the main command and which are the, which, which, which the participles, right? The main one is his command to keep yourselves in God's love. And the other three are the ways in which, the means that we need to employ in order to do that. So, the main one, keep yourselves in God's love. What does it mean? Well, to keep ourselves in the love of God is to fight, is to strive, is to put effort into remaining at that place where we can know and experience the love of God for us. Because you you can't just drift, right, just... Follow the, 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 you know, the world downstream and expect that you, are, uh, that you will know and you will experience certainty of God's love for you. No, you need to fight, you need to paddle upstream, you need to struggle, you need to put effort into remaining at that place where you know and experience God's love. Now the way Jesus puts it in John 15 verse 9 is, he says, Remain in my love. Remain in my love. Okay, Lord, how to do that? He says, if you keep my command, you will remain in my love. So to keep ourselves in God's love involves struggle, involves striving, pursuing godliness. But some of you who are awake will ask, eh? But what about verse 1? One? Verse, one, verse 1 says, it is God who loves us. It's God who keeps us. How does it square with this command that we must keep ourselves? Well, as C.J. Mahaney has said, if you ask Jude, if Jude were here and you ask him, hey, hey Jude, <laughs> hey Jude, are we kept by the Father who loves us? Or. Do we keep ourselves in the love of God? And Jude will say, na-na-na-na-no, nah, right? <laughs> he will say, yes! Yes! Huh? Yes, because there is no contradiction. There's no contradiction. The truth of God loving and keeping us in verse 1 is meant to fuel, to give incentive to our own efforts to keep ourselves in that love. It is the truth of verse 1 that makes the effort of verse 21 possible. Put it another way, the evidence that someone is truly loved and kept by God. How, how do you know whether a person is genuinely called, loved and kept? You know when you see in his own life how he is keeping himself, how he is putting effort Striving to keep himself in God's love. The Christian who is seeking to obey the command to keep himself in the love of God we will look to the assurances of verse 1, the perspective of verse 1 that it is God who loves him and keeps him and finds strength and encouragement in the day-to-day keeping of himself in God's love. So, the grace of verse 1, the false teachers have turned into license. But true Christians see the grace of verse 1 as effort to obey verse 21. So, grace must lead to effort, not license. And so, Jude gives three ways to keep ourselves in God's love. He says you must build yourselves up In your most holy faith. Now plainly, we don't have time to go into every one of these ones. But in its essence, it is talking about reading, meditating on, memorizing Bible. We must go to where the gospel is presented. And stare, and look, and contemplate on what Jesus has done for us. We must build ourselves up in that message. Or what Christ has done for us. Second thing he says, we must pray in the Holy Spirit. It's quite clear. The third thing he says, we must wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be mercy, there will be eternal life. So very clearly, Jude is saying how to keep yourselves in the love of God. Bible. Prayer waiting for the return of Jesus, looking, not just at the here and now, but expecting Jesus to return, having a forward future orientation. Very basic, fundamental Christian disciplines. Bible, prayer, looking for the future, looking into eternity, not just caught up with the here and now, basic basic things no no you know secret formula no hidden wisdom These things we know and so if you or I ever find ourselves going through a spiritually lean time where we are struggling where temptation seems to engulf and overwhelm us where we Uh, have very little assurance of God's love, could it be that somewhere upstream we've simply neglected? I mean, there could be many reasons, but one of the more fundamental reasons might be we have simply neglected Bible, prayer, and we've just been caught up with present orientation and not future, eternal, perspective. Verse 22 to 23, Jude continues to teach us how to contend. How to contend for the gospel, how to help those who have been affected by the false teachers. So 20 to 21 was contending for our hearts, contending for ourselves, 22, 23, how to contend for others, how to help those affected. And he says, verse 22, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now notice the difference. The difference in how you treat a false teacher. When it comes to the false teacher, Jude has no mercy. Jude has no grace. He says, these people will be condemned. There's certain judgment will happen. But when it comes to people, let astray, Oh, he says, show mercy. Show mercy to those who doubt. And he calls on us to show mercy because he has already reminded us that we are people who have been shown mercy by God. And when Jesus returns, we can expect even more mercy. And so for people who have been shown mercy, for people who know the mercy of God, he calls on us to show mercy on those who are being affected by the false teaching. and he ends with verses 24 to 25 coming back again to the God who keeps because you see in light of the false teachers he's writing to a church that's troubled a church that's unsettled i mean they, you can imagine that they might have seen some of their fellow church members being led astray being unsettled by these false teaching and and you can imagine they are asking themselves hey, that, that guy he was the he was top student in, in, in the baptism class he was he was you know youth, he was the youth leader I, I was under him and now he's been led astray what about me? will I make it to the end? someone stronger more knowledgeable than me has, has been led astray will I Make it to the end. And so Jude ends with these encouraging and strengthening words of assurance. He says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. (laughs) This God, look to him. He is able. He is able to keep you from stumbling. And not only that, he will present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. This God is able to keep you. Look to this God. So, as you contend for the gospel, we need to contend to keep ourselves in God's love. We need to contend. By showing mercy to people who have been led astray. And as we do all this contending, we need to do it rooted in the strong assurance of God who keeps us. This is the God who is able to keep us and present us on the last day spotless and blameless with great joy. And so, To this God, verse 25, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. May God help us.